0: Much. Let's look this morning at Hebrews 1.1. The first word in this sentence, God. Who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake, God spoke, in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. I want to concentrate for the next few minutes with you on that phrase, God spoke. First of all, when the writer says God, he has assumed the existence. He doesn't try to prove it. And that God spoke implies something else, that this God is interested in his creation to the extent that he speaks to it. We are not deists. We do not believe that God wound up the world and then let it go on its own. We believe that God is interested in the world, interested in us. In fact, he loves us. Look over at 1 John 1 for a moment, and let's read the first four verses of that first chapter. The representative of God on earth was Jesus, and there were those that studied him. And here John the Apostle writes, that which was from the beginning, not in the beginning or at the beginning, he just existed from the beginning, which we have heard, we listened to him, John says, which we have seen, uh, seen with our eyes, we saw him, he's living, he was living, looked like a human being, to us, which we have looked upon, you might want to make a note to yourself, that means they studied him. They studied him. And and they touched him. He is real. This one in the flesh is a real being, and yet he's God in the flesh. And our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was made known, and we saw it. And we're telling you and showing to you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ." And these things write unto you, that your joy may be full. God spoke. God exists. And the second word implies that he loves his created beings. God spoke, And God will give us anything we need to be in fellowship with him. The one thing we needed more than anything else was a savior. When you read the book of Job, you can begin to feel sorry for that ancient gentleman, that patriarch. Because he didn't know what happened. He had no idea how it was that he was suffering. Nobody told him. In fact, at the end of the book, God doesn't even tell him why. But we know that Satan accused God of being unrighteous. Because he protected Job. And God said, you can touch him, but you cannot kill him. Well, Satan then proceeded to take everything away from Job, including his health. Job is still suffering. He wants a Redeemer kinsman. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. I know that, but I don't have one. And so Satan was allowed before God to accuse God of being unrighteous. If it were the case that Satan went before God today and said, Have you considered my servant Keith? God would immediately say, Take it up with his lawyer because you and I have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John two one, He argues our case now. He was God in the flesh, implying that God's so concerned about us that he wants us to have fellowship with him. Let me ask two questions then this morning. Is there a God? Why did he speak? Every time I teach, I know that something's going on in the minds of those who are listening. I absolutely know it. And there are several things that tend to resist what we hear, brothers and sisters. The minute a speaker speaks, resistance is already there in your minds. Especially if it's something you've never heard before. But my habits, your habits. My beliefs, your beliefs. My goals, your goals are different. Our attitudes may be different. And so what happens when I speak to an audience whoever it is, or if I'm just talking to my neighbor for that matter, his cognitive dissonance sets into play. He begins to discard what he does not know and starts to retain what he already knows. In other words, it's hard for us to accept new information. And so when we are taught any new thing, anything that we haven't heard before, our initial response is to resist it. Not a bad thing. It can help us a lot if it's doctrinally a problem. Every human. Now, John Calvin looked at this problem we have and said, because we are that way, we cannot possibly obey God. We're going to have to have some outside help. I came out of a group in 1964 that was heavily involved in Calvinism. In fact, they were old-time Calvinists. Nothing happened unless God caused it. Henry, you think I could get a glass of water? Thank you. Nothing happened unless God caused it. Uh, We had a preacher one time debating one of these Calvinists, and the Calvinist stood up put an apple on the dais and said, God did from all eternity command that I eat this apple. He made it predestined. With that, the gospel preacher jumped up and ate the apple. But we do have this problem in us of resisting. So John Calvin said, the only way for us to obey the gospel is for the Holy Spirit himself to touch our minds in such a way that it makes it ready for us to obey the gospel. And do you know what, brothers and sisters? I'm starting to hear that among us now. That God does this for us. If God does it for us, why did he speak to us? You see, he spoke to us and gave us the chance to do one of two things. Resist it Obey it. Another thing happens. I'm sorry, but I've been sick for three weeks. And Dorothy's sick of me now, so... i <laughs> just getting so dry. Now, not only d- does this thing happen called cognitive dissonance, we start resisting. But it's the case... I'm afraid I'll spill it you hear about that fellow that taught a lizard to stand on his hind legs was the first stand up chameleon that's what I'm being a number two thing happens first of all I tend to resist the truth if it's something I haven't heard before then second I will involve myself in selective exposure if you invite someone to come this week who's never been to the church of Christ never been to a worship service, he's going to go through this. He's going to resist any new thing he hears, just automatic, and then he's going to accept eventually only what he allo- his background will allow him to accept. Psychologists call this selective exposure. He can only see parts of something at a given moment. It's interesting to me that when Jesus would meet someone, he would know exactly where that person was and how to take him from here to here. You remember when he met... The man we call Peter, his name was Simon when Jesus met him. He said, you're Simon, but you're going to be Peter. Jesus knew that if he worked long enough with Peter, he'd overcome his cognitive dissonance and his selective exposure. And why is that possible? Look again at Hebrews 1.1. The God who created us knows how to reach our minds. How does he do it, he speaks. No convulsion. No electrical current. No feeling whatsoever involved in that. He speaks, and I need to hear it. And God has enough uh, trust in me as a human being to obey Him if I choose to do so. It's up to us, folks. The Lord said on the cross, it's finished. He doesn't have any more to do. He's done all He needs to do to save us. It's now up to us. We need to obey Him. We do have providential help, but that's not in the area of salvation. Now, since it's the case that when I get new information, I tend to resist it, or maybe I'll only accept what my background allows me to accept, what are our young people hearing in school today? That everything we see around us is an accident. It only came to be through a process called evolution. Well, that's strange to me that people believe that. The idea is that there was a dense ball of matter that exploded. It's called the Big Bang Theory. And this stuff all started spraying out through space. I would like to know where the space originated. But anyways, it started and then these clumps, some of these clumps were attracted to a star and the one on which you and I live, called the Earth, was attracted to a star and began spinning and sort of became oblong in shape, round almost. It's just an accident. You ever sat in your office, Brother Hickson, and just go, hmm. Does God exist? Hmm. Well, what happened on earth here? Let's ask Dr. Sagan what happened here on earth. Well, eventually these acids came together, organic compounds came together, and formed a swamp. Don't know where the organic compounds originated, but they formed a swamp. They called it a primordial soup. And if we were back there then, we would have seen this little creature swimming around in the primordial soup. He was formed from a lucky combination of amino acids, and there he was. Had everything he needed, there he was. But one day, this fellow started to desire to get out of that soup, and so he crawled up on the land, and for millions of years rolled around on the land and formed little warts under his tummy, and then all of a sudden they became legs. And I'm telling you exactly the way the science books say it. And then he climbed up in a tree one day and decided he'd learn how to fly. I would have liked to have been the Excedrin salesman back there. I want to know how many times that thing jumped out of a tree and hit the ground. So I sit in my office and I go, hmm, I don't understand this. And then, years ago, Dorothy wanted the kitchen remodeled, and I said, it's too expensive, honey. So we got the kitchen remodeled. And when we were doing it, she wanted this great big picture window in the back so she could look out on the backyard and her bird feeders. And I said, it's too expensive, honey. You should see this picture window we have. But I'm glad we have it because I can watch the woodpeckers out there. And three different kinds come to the the bird feeders. Well, I thought about this bird to climb up in a tree and decided to get the worm out of the tree for the first time. I don't know where the worm originated, He wasn't in the primordial suit. And this poor thing's up here in the tree flying around wanting something to eat. So he ratatats the tree. Now I really want to be the Excedrin salesman. I wonder how long it took that bird or whatever it was to develop the thing that a woodpecker has in its head. It has in its head one of the finest hydraulic systems known to man. And every time that thing hits the tree, or my aluminum siding I used to have, right at tat. it didn't bother him a bit. The shock absorbers took the shock. It's right in his head. doesn't hurt him a bit to do that. You and I don't like to bang our heads against the wall. It hurts. But that thing is perfectly made. Now, young people, next time your science teacher pulls out that science book, see if I didn't give it to you in the order they teach you. But I'm sitting in my office going, hmm, why did that thing get out of that suit? Why did it crawl on the ground? It had everything it needed in the soup. No reason to get out. Then why did it try to learn how to fly or hammer that tree? Did you hear the brother announce we've been married since 1961? That means I have a mother in law. And that means that one of those that thing in the soup got out because he had an ambitious mother in law of all of the ridiculous doctrines. Evolution is the worst one. I have to be almost insane to believe in in evolution, just looking around at what's going on here. Can you imagine that evolution produced a man and a woman at the exact moment in time when they could, the next offspring would be a human being? They have to have that miracle in their system, or it doesn't work. Well, God is... God spoke. Let's go over to John 20 a moment. Brother Hickson, would you read 25 through 27 please? John 20, 25 through 27. Okay, now notice, Thomas is sometimes called Doubting Thomas. I don't call him that. I call him Seeking Thomas. He wanted the evidence that Jesus was out of the tomb. And you'll notice that Jesus allowed him the evidence. Yes, Thomas, you could touch the hole in my side or you could uh, uh, even... uh, Touch my hand and see the holes from the nails. So now you have the evidence. You notice what Thomas said? My master, kurios, and my God, theos. My master and my God. Thomas was totally convinced now that God existed in the flesh. I've often thought about how God was so interested in us. And I was trying to think of a way to explain what happened when Jesus came to earth. We had a dog at home one time we called Maggie. Maggie feigned being deaf, but if I opened the refrigerator door, she'd come running. Even if she were in the next county, I think, she'd come running. And she'd sit there right near my leg there and her tail wagging. Psychologists say she's submitting to the Alpha male there, that's what that is, not love. They don't know how to love. But anyway, she's wiggling her tail and expecting something. And I got to looking at her. And I, and I thought one day, I wonder if she knows what I am. Not really. What she knows is I take care of her, I pet her, I feed her, take her to the vet when she needs it. But that's all she knows. How am I, Michael, going to explain me to a dog? What I am, the essence of me. How am I going to do that? Well, how is God going to explain himself to us? How did he do it? In order for me to explain myself to the dog, I've got to become a dog. In order for God fully to explain himself to us, he had to become a man. Look over with me at John the 6th chapter for a moment. Uh, excuse me, John the 14th chapter. John fourteen. Jesus had just gotten through telling his apostles, "No man comes unto the Father but by me." And then he said, "If you had known me, this is verse seven, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him." You know what Philip said? He didn't get it. He didn't get it. He said, "Show us the Father," and it suffices us. There's the most poignant response there from the Lord. Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you don't know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Our Bible teaches us that no man has seen the first person of the Godhead yet at all. No man has seen the Father at any time, John 1 18. we We're going to be introduced to him one day, called the Judgment Day. Then we'll get to meet him. But seeing Jesus is seeing the Father. God is. And God is interested in us. Those are the two most important facts I can give you this morning. That the Father we serve has spoken to us. And we have his book right here. The Bible doesn't make a formal argument for God, although it points out to us that the firmament shows his handiwork. It points out to us that that handiwork is seen all over the world, Psalm 19, one through 6 We're told that the universe itself can show us his power, But none of that shows us God unless we know about God by revelation. We'll just think some power did it. We won't know who he is. God didn't leave us in the dark there. He told us exactly who he he is and then he sent his son to show us who he is. And so this God has spoken. I want to make one more point before I move on and ask why he spoke. I want to know how the first man knew there was a God. Had to. When Moses wrote Genesis 1, he said nine times something that left to himself without any inspiration from God he could not have said. He lived in a time when the gods that were taught in the Egyptian hierarchy were arbitrary pe- uh, persons in the system they taught. And those gods were like human beings, and they hated, and they were jealous, and and everything was they did was bad for man, and yet Moses nine times in Genesis 1 says, it's good. It's impossible for Moses, left to himself in that culture, to write that. And when I look at Genesis 1, it excites me to know somebody outside was telling Moses what to write. God of heaven told him. Close your Bibles a minute if you want. Or just kind of put your now, I would like someone in this audience to tell me something he's never learned. It's awfully quiet in here, didn't it? Can you tell me something you've never learned, Brother Hickson? I can't either. I want to know again how that first man knew there was a God. Exactly. He had to learn it, right? He had to either have seen it or tasted it or touched it or heard it or what's the one I left out? Smelled it. Just go back in your minds to that first fellow. Somebody talked to him. That's what our passage said. Blind force, the scientist says, blind force created a mind. Not possible. Science itself meets itself coming and going there because they say that nothing can come from nothing. You have to have something with which to start to get something. And yet they'll argue that all of this around us is just a blind accident. Hebrews 1 1. It's been my privilege for 30 years to teach classes at the Memphis School of Preaching, and especially classes on evidences, how we got the Bible, and so on. I think some people think the Bible just dropped out of the sky one day, and there it was. God, who at sundry times, and in diverse manners, well, he spoke through dreams. He spoke through visions. He spoke through the Urim and Thummim. He uh, spoke through the prophets. But in in these last days, the Christian dispensation, his son spoke to us. That means there will be no more speakers. The Son was the last one. But I've often wondered, are there some reasons that we could see in the scriptures why our Creator spoke to us? First of all, look at John 3.16, or somebody quote it. Anyone, please. Let's run over to Romans 5, 6 through 8 first before I say what I was going to say there. Romans 5, 6 through 8. In 6 it says, when we we were without strength, what did Christ do? What did he do? Died for the ungodly. Well, would a human being die for a righteous man? Scarcely. Would he die for a good man? Peradventure. But look at the first word of verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us. Watch this. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you notice that before you became a Christian, God loved you? And me. And he loved us as much as he's ever going to love us before we ever became Christians. That love is available, and that's why He speaks to us. He loves us. No doubt about it. Look at Matthew 5.45. Does He make His reign to fall on the just and the unjust? And so on. So He loves everybody, but He loves His creation to the extent that He will do anything He can to save it. And one of the things He did was to send His Son But he made us in a very unusual way. He made us in such a way that to ensure that we really love him, we can do it voluntarily. It's not forced love that we must return. It's love responding to his. We love him because he first loved us. All right. So that love caused him to speak to us, to send his son, to let us know what his will is. But he especially loves the household of faith. 1 Timothy 4.10 His love provided for the fact that we could reject. Otherwise it's not real love. I don't suppose when you were dating you grabbed each other and slapped each other around and said you better love me or else did you? You wanted that voluntary response. That's what he wants. He wants from me a voluntary reaction to his provided love. If you don't under, don't believe that, just read the book of Hosea and see the picture of God's love as Hosea takes care of Gomer and Gomer turns out to be a harlot and everything else that's bad and so not even knowing that her husband is taking care of her and that may be like a lot of us. We're out here playing around in the world and forget that somebody's taking care of us. He loves us. He loves His creation. Not only that, in the second place He's spoken. Look at Psalm 8.5. Someone please. Mike. Mike. All right, now man is made a little lower than the angels. Now I want you to underline that word lower and put lower as to space. Not lower as to character or essence. We're down here, they're up there is the point. He put us on the earth. We're not up there with the angels, but that has nothing to do with character. And then he says he crowned man with glory and honor. When Adam was created, he was sinlessly perfect. He was crowned with glory and honor, created to live on this earth, not in heaven, uh, in his human form. We have to get a different body to go there. But as a dignified being, that word crown means he uh, he is treating us with dignity. We could translate it dignity. He's crowned. He has the dignity of glory, esteemed by God, and nobility or honor, but Adam lost that glory, Adam lost that dignity, Adam gave up that nobility. At that moment, God's justice must be satisfied. He created a being who was sinlessly perfect that was supposed to love him. He looks at him with dignity, but that man rejected it and created a problem with God's justice. Because there needed now to be a sacrifice that would be equal to the sin that that man crea- uh, accomplished. And the only one who is a perfect man, whoever strode on this earth besides Adam, is the Christ. If you look over at Hebrews nine now, you'll see this said about Jesus. But we see Jesus, watch it, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He came down here. He's down here Lord, just like Adam was. Crowned with glory and honor. He's perfect. He's dignified and noble. He's perfect. He's not talking about the fact he went back to heaven there. He's talking about the fact that Jesus was perfect. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. God speaks to us because he treats man with dignity. He wants us to be like that. You know, I meet so many people. Dorothy can tell you they're at our kitchen table all the time. Counseling. I don't know what's going on in our society. Maybe somebody could help me here. But I'm meeting more and more depressed people, melancholy people, nostalgic people, people who are hurting and so on. Well, if I'm a child of God, I ought to stand up straight, button my vest, pop my buttons, and be so glad that I am one of God's dignified, noble, esteemed creatures. And I retained that, or recaptured that, in Christ, Ephesians 4.24. In Christ we are created after God in all true holiness. So what Adam caused, Christ corrected. Incidentally, if God looks at me as nobility, then I ought to look at you that way. God spoke also because we need to know ourselves. He not only loves us, treats us with dignity, but we need to know ourselves. I was talking to a young man one day, and I said, How are you doing? He said, Oh, I'm still trying to find myself. I suggested you look in the mirror. I could see him right in front of me. What is that nonsense of finding yourself going on in our society? It's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said, You forget about yourself. Deny yourself. Trying to find myself. Isn't that strange? He'd never find himself. Look at Jeremiah 10.23. He can't do it. Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walks to direct his own steps. You can't find yourself that way. If you'll lose your life, you'll gain it. Isn't that a paradox? It's what he taught. You deny yourself, then you can be my disciple. I have to You hear about that fellow sitting in the worship service? And the preacher said something, and he jumped. the fellow jumped up and said, Eureka, God bless you. And on the way home, his wife said, What in the world happened to you this morning? You never do that in worship. He said, oh, I know, I just forgot myself. That's exactly what we should be doing. And finally this morning, if he hadn't spoken to us, we would have never known what he wanted us to do. And we must do his will. Look at Hebrews 10.10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There is a God in heaven, and I need to do his will. When you think of God's will, I want you to think of three things. I want you to think of his final will. That's judgment day. That cannot be changed. There's no way to change that. According to Revelation uh, chapter 21, verses 11 and 12, he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. You cannot change it once you're there. His final will is set in concrete. He also has a revealed will, and, and that's from Genesis to Revelation. And I can know what his revealed will is, but God has a circumstantial will. And I wish I had time this morning to talk about his circumstantial will because that's where his providence operates. But the will we need to know to be sanctified is written down for us. We cannot be in doubt about it. And whatever he's told us to do, that's what we're to do. There is a God in heaven. His will is that I obey him. Out of love. Out of a return of his love. And the fact that he is. Could I ask a question here for a moment? Uh, Mike, would you come up here, quickly run up here a minute. I want to make an illustration. Could I ask a quick, how many of you are members of the Church Okay. Everybody look at First John 2, 3 with me. Hereby, do we know that we know him because we keep his commandments? <laughs> Mike, have I ever lied to you? No, sir. I have a little man in my hand. Do you believe that? No, sir. Hold it, hold your hand up. Here, hold his hat for me. Wait a minute. Hold his coat too. Okay. Now, you believe I got a little man in my hand? and why are you holding his hat and coat? <laughs> yep. Read that verse again. Hereby do we know that we know him if what? Now, you all said you were Christians. Whom did you obey? The fact that you obeyed means there's a God. Go home with that. Thank you for your kind attention. Otherwise, why are you holding his hat and coat if he doesn't exist?